Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Julie Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about all of life through the prism of food. And this week I'm back with MasterChef winner, author and doctor, Saleha Mahmoud Ahmed. Just unbelievable number of vegetables. I got frozen molochia leaves from a mainstream supermarket the other day. That's like a Persian green. You know, like, what what is happening? This is brilliant. Frozen spinach, frozen herbs, frozen mixed vegetables, frozen brassicas, frozen peppers. My goodness. She's a historian, a TV chef and a gastroenterologist with a kitchen clinic. And she's on a mission to prescribe food to fix our obesity crisis. We first met on the Delicious podcast way back when she took me through the fascinating history of food in the Mughal Empire in her book Kazana. We met again for Foodology, her often hilarious handbook to healthy eating, and now she's back with a kitchen prescription, her no-nonsense doctor's guide to the gut. I asked her how she sees that journey through TV and books to where she is now. Well, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I I genuinely think that what holds us back in the in this food writing industry, so to speak, is the fact that we sort of pigeonhole people into certain types of writer. You know, so this person can only write on this genre or that genre. When in fact, many cookery authors have many genres that they can often talk about based on their personal experience and history. For me, of course, I have so many different aspects of my life and personality and my food history, which I wanted to write at different stages in my life. Coming out of MasterChef, it felt very right and natural to write a book like Kazana. It felt that it felt to me that there was a space and it was the right time to write about Indo-Persian cuisine. And I never stopped being a doctor. I was working as a doctor throughout. I've never had a career break from being a doctor to do my food work. I always do it alongside. Foodology came at a great time um, in lockdown for me where I had all the time in the world to sort of write about what I had learned over the last couple of years about food and health and and my sort of viewpoint on food and gastroenterology. But it's really now as I become progressively more senior and my ability to speak with different patients with different digestive ailments has matured that I've really felt like it's the right point in my career to write a book about gut healthy eating. The thing is, you, I could have written this book when I came straight out of MasterChef, but it would not have been as good a book as it is now, sort of five, six years down the line. I, I totally agree. What you've done is you've won MasterChef, which is great as a junior doctor. But even at that time, you said that, you know, in that kind of Miss World thing that they do is, what would you like to achieve? You, know, <laughs> you said you dream of writing cookbooks and tackling obesity. Mm tackling obesity you said when you were 29 years old as a junior doctor you then took us through your culture your history your connection with food and i think that that's really important and i want to talk about that in in a second and but most of all you're really interested in your patients and what you're seeing every single day in your clinic put it all together and you've got this wonderful funny insightful authoritative and now ever more maturing understanding of what's happening in our food culture. I have to say, you know, I work with the Food Foundation, I do the Food Foundation podcast and my response to when your book came through just after I'd interviewed Dr. Rupi was, oh my God, why, why do we still have to talk about this? How frustrated are you these days? Um, I don't think I am frustrated, actually. I think um, 
I have this understanding through the lens of a doctor that the problem is so complex. And when I meet patients in clinic, they are the product of many, many years of eating in a certain fashion. Their health problems are a result of them eating in a certain pattern for a very, very long time. And when you really dissect it down... I, I don't ever think that they are to blame for their problems. I think that actually it, everyone's a product of how they've been taught to eat. And actually taking a step back, telling people to change that can be very powerful, but it's also very difficult, which is why I don't really get frustrated with it. What, I, what There are things that frustrate me like, you know, why is it that no one ever addresses the root cause of the problem? Yes, that does frustrate me. I mean, it's so important to have learning about healthy eating from school age, you know, so that we instill the ability of people to understand how to prevent disease in the long term through food from a young age. And that includes a cookery education. Um, and, and for some reason, people just just despite everything that we go through, despite, you know, this being such an important topic, we just don't talk about it in the way that I think it should be addressed. And then I think there's that second layer that does frustrate me sometimes about how the, the topic becomes so overly complicated, um, particularly in social media spheres. It seems to be the most tricky, most contentious topic where people have lots of different opinions um, and often based on information that is incorrect or partially correct. And when people use those assumptions to enforce certain patterns of eating and it has long term impact on their health, that can be quite upsetting and disappointing. But I wanted to approach my book, The Kitchen Prescription, with a really open mind and start as if from scratch, as if someone doesn't know anything. And I think it's really important, both in foodology and in the kitchen prescription, to try and leave any previous understanding that you have at the door, start afresh and then reevaluate how you feel about patterns of healthy eating and how you want to change that. It's really important to just take that step back. The most important thing about the book, I feel, and the move on, is that you are prescribing food rather than medicine. And what's really interesting about you is that, you know, you have come up through the ranks as, as a junior doctor to a gastroenterologist and you are within the system that actually doesn't really teach junior doctors very much about uh, nutrition, not not in your training. I mean, it's beginning to, but only because a bunch of doctors kind of said, oi, we need to be taught this. And I'm wondering if that is the legacy of that British food culture that is not very connected to health and compared with your Asian food culture. I'm just thinking about Dr. Rupi as well. And, you know, I've recently had a conversation with him about it. You know, you as Asians are much more connected than, you know, your typical white doctor mm. who's teaching a bunch of medical students. And I wonder if that's beginning to change from the centre now as as more people who are connected, not just from Asian backgrounds, most of the world is much more connected than Britain has been. So that influence as we have you know, a much more diverse culture within the NHS. Is that making a change to the way that you prescribe food from within? It's a very, very good question, actually. Um, I I think it, you, you may well be right. There, there's an extent to which the changing dynamics and changing workforce has an impact on food in the NHS and the way food is perceived in the NHS. However, what I would say is we have in this country a great um, a great culture of living off the land. 
And we also have a culture of showing that food is a way of that we care about people. And I think it is really, really important to acknowledge that um, because what has happened is that over the years, the um, concept of caring f- for people through the plate of food that you put in front of them has eroded in the NHS. It hasn't eroded elsewhere in the country, but in the NHS, it has eroded away which is a great, great, great shame. Um, And if it takes people from different backgrounds um, to bring that back, then hurrah, you know, I I think that's great. I totally agree with you that medical school education is still a little bit lacking. It's moved on leaps and bounds and it often takes a long time for it to catch up. But if actually it's both ways, it's not just medical student teaching, seniority level, there is very little understanding of nutrition in the senior spheres as well. And a certain reluctance to accept it either because the feeling is that, you know, our dietetics colleagues should be taking that over and we shouldn't be doing it well my argument there is well if I've got a patient I refer them to a dietitian and they're not going to see one for a year because of pressures that they're facing then it is your absolute duty to do the basic prescription the food prescription and also your basic duty to respond to what the patient wants because patients want food related answers They want to know what they can eat to make themselves better. Um, So you have to have some basic knowledge to arm yourself and be able to take a proper food history, which is something we don't do. We take drug history, social histories, family histories. We take patients presenting complaints, histories of presenting complaints, etc. You know, but we don't say, okay, person X, what do you like eating? On an average week, what would you eat? Have you been, you know, a, a larger weight than this? Have you been losing weight? Are you gaining weight at the moment? Which foods irritate you? Which foods do you think really suit you? Do you have the money to be able to make certain food related changes? If you don't, have you thought about the inexpensive ways that you could do it have you thought of food as being a way of caring for yourself you know do you have a knowledge of what anti-inflammatory foods might look like for you you know it's such a complicated diverse topic and we are limited and we have certain constraints because as a medic working in hospital I've got 10 10 minutes per patient and I have got to sort out their true medical problems I have got to also prescribe medications to treat their illness and the food is an addition on top of everything else yes I make the time to do it because I think I've got the skills to do it and I also think it makes a massive impact on patients quality of life but also for them they leave feeling quite satisfied as if they've had a very human conversation Um, And that's really supremely important to me. We're getting there. It's taking a while. I think people like Dr. Rupi are are brilliant. Many others working in primary care. There's a lot of um, selfless heroes who are doing food history conversations in their clinics without being asked to do so. Um, And, you know, we don't appreciate the work they do, but they they impact the lives of hundreds of people day in, day out. So lifestyle medicine is really burgeoning. And uh, particularly in general practice, I think there's a lot more work to do in in secondary and tertiary care though yeah absolutely and you know outside the clinic you we are all fighting against the food industry the food industry has enormous power and gets people addicted to sugar and Mm. salt so and you guys have to deal with the end result of that you we're also battling against big pharma you know of course you know big pharma has enormous power to send targeted information to all of us but particularly to you medics as well so there's an enormous amount of pressure plus the fact that the Obesity is costing the NHS 
five billion pounds a mm. year. You know, there's an enormous amount of work to be done. So I think that what you've done in in this wonderful book, and I really do think it's a wonderful book because it's so 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 simple. And I love your three prescriptions. Prescription one: cook, cook, <laughs> cook. Prescription two: feed your gut bugs. Prescription three: do not mm. diet. Can we just break those yeah. down? Cook, cook, cook. Wipe, cook from scratch. Well, um, I've I I've am a huge advocate of cooking on many many fronts, and I could probably write another book on just the concept of why cooking is so important. However, um, fundamentally, we are the only species to inhabit this earth that cooks. We're called coctivores in Latin for that for that reason. Mm-hmm. I love I love that. So anthropologically speaking, you know, we are the only species to inhabit this earth that can cook. You know, your foxes can't cook, monkeys can't cook, nobody else can cook. And our ability to cook and derive energy from cooked foods more readily and easily has meant that we've evolved to become the complex species that we are today with our big brains and relatively smaller, more sophisticated guts. So um, it is such a fundamental human trait that I don't believe that people don't have the ability to do it. I'm not saying everybody should be able to cook to the standard of MasterChef or, you know, or a professional <laughs> chef, but the basic cookery skill to be able to cook a nutritious meal is fundamental. And I have seen a pretty clear and stark difference in health outcomes between people who can and cannot cook for themselves because that reliance then on pre-cooked food with its higher ultra-processed component, higher trans fats, higher salts, higher sugar levels and overall less richness in terms of fruit and veg, legumes, nuts, seeds and pulses, etc. puts you in a much worse position in the long term. So the ability to cook or be cooked for is actually very, very critical in your long-term health outcomes. So that's the first rule. Cook for yourself from scratch where you can. Now, I'm not a prude about this. I realise that sometimes we all need to just go to that pre-cooked meal. But I'm talking about the long-term pattern of, of cooking the majority of the time for yourself. And that's why I was really keen on offering easy gut healthy recipes for um, foods that you would otherwise have in a takeaway, like, you know, you might get tacos, you might get, um, you know, a, a, shawar- a chicken shawarma, you you might get a sandwich, uh, you know, what are the ways that, that you can make that quickly, easily, effectively at home, um, save yourself money, time and energy, and actually um, batch cook some of those as well and, and nourish and feed yourself. So I was really focused on making cooking easy. That's really important for setting down traditions within the family as well. 100%. Isn't it? So yeah. new practices. See, get your kids to, to see that you're cooking, feed them from scratch so they expect to do that for their children in the long run. That's how you change food culture, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. That's how it gets instilled within you. Because you just presume that that's what everybody does. That's what you presume that that's normal. Um, it becomes part of your life. And cooking should be the most one of the most important parts of your life, I think. Okay. Absolutely. Prescription two, feed your mm. gut bugs. I love this. I think you should have a television show called Feeding Your Gut Bugs. I would love a, sh- a television show called Feeding a Gut Bugs because I'm it's what we it. all, yeah, 
because it's what we need to do. Um, because I think we don't, uh, many, many people I meet don't realise that, you know, you don't live alone. You have this wonderful um, and exquisitely complicated symbiotic relationship with these gut bugs that are living inside you. These aren't bugs that have your human DNA. They have their own DNA and they're exerting an effect inside you. They're in, exerting an effect on your intestinal wall. They're communicating you via with you via nerves and hormones, etc., your immune system. So it's really fundamental that you keep the population inside there thriving and healthy. And it's very easy to do that. Very, very, very easy. It comes down to eating a a plant-centric diet, which is full of whole grains, fruits and vegetables, pulses, legumes, nuts, seeds, and some spices. But also there's this other group of foods which are um, sort of fermented, basically. They're live. Um, we call them probiotics. So you've got things like kefir and kombucha, live yogurt, um, you know, uh, kimchi, etc., sauerkraut. And different cultures have different fermented foods available to them, depending on food availability and food cultures in that particular region. There's lots to learn from global influences as well. Um, so that's the rule number that that's an important rule feed your feed your gut bugs very very easy to do once you know how and initially i think requires a bit of thinking like oh can i you know could i swap out that rice white rice for a grain today um could i pack a few more vegetables into this particular dish is there a way i can use my freezer and my store cupboard a bit more effectively to optimize my gut health but once you know how and you start doing it, it actually becomes very intuitive and you really reap the benefits of good gut health because it affects your mental health, your clarity, your skin, the way you go to the, the loo, you know, instead of being constipated, you then suddenly are able to poo much more freely. Talking about food and poo puts people off, but it's really important. What what goes in will eventually come out. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, feeding your gut bugs and having this positive symbiotic relationship with them is really really important. i think that it's about changing the narrative isn't it i think that we have heard so much about gut health now that everybody kind of understands it but it feels still like there's this kind of middle class who feed their guts and or the rest of the country who mm. can't who are living in food deserts who you know can't get to the shops haven't got enough money so they have to buy junk food because that's the easiest way it's this this narrative that won't change you talk about swapping out and that's mm. that's a really interesting idea what do you say to patients who come into your clinic about easiest and cheapest and most accessible ways of feeding your gut bugs and i'm wondering whether your own asian background how cheap it is to cook lentils for example and Mm, just to use flavors and that basic sort of cooking to to really Mm. change your diet so that you are really stimulating your gut bugs and giving a massively sort of diverse diet to the most important Mm. bugs in your body it's a really interesting question. Again, you always ask the best questions, Julia. <laughs> I really think that. But um, I, I think that there that we have to remember that in periods of scarcity, where humans have had limited food, what have we done? We have fermented our food to try and preserve it. And one of the most gut healthy things that one can do for oneself is to rekindle that relationship with fermentation. 
and it is so inexpensive and gives you so much abundance. It is unbelievable. I mean, I made my own sauerkraut, for example. I bought a cabbage for um, literally 50 pence, a white cabbage, and all I needed was salt. That's it. Salt, cabbage and water. Mm -hmm. That is all you need to make your own sauerkraut. And it goes such a long way. And then when whether you start mixing that in a little bit with your pasta, whether you then put that in your sandwiches, whether you have it with cheese. I mean, the uses then become pretty endless, you know. So that relationship with fermentation um, is really important is really important and I think very inexpensive the, the second thing is that um, gut healthy eating is not just about the f- the fruit and veg section of your supermarket so I sort of go into a supermarket and I visualize certain zones and I've got three key zones that I go to for my gut health yes I go to the fruit and veg section and believe it or not I also will shop in the fruit and veg section where everything has gone down in price mm-hmm. and they're about to chuck away those strawberries that mm-hmm. have gone a little bit watery um, and are, are seeping out their juice or their mango etc and it's on for 10 12p I buy it all I bring it home and I freeze it um, in packets so that I can make things with it later. Um, and, and even in the fruit and veg section, there's certain sections that you will identify which are more cost effective, particularly the brassicas. Brassicas are one of the most ex- inexpensive vegetables and are great for gut health as mm-hmm. well. That's zone one. Zone two and three are fundamentally important because they are great cost effective places. The lentils and tin, tinned lentil, tins and lentil section is the second zone. And that is the most underrated section in a supermarket. Mm. So where you get your red lentils, your dried chickpeas, where you get your tinned lentils for, you know, 10, 15 yes. pence sometimes. Yes. And, and they they're can... cheaper in the round the world aisles, I've noticed. So you go to get they your are. lentils, which are super expensive. Mm. And then you get your green lentils in the Asian bit of the round the world aisles. Cost virtually nothing. Well, totally. And you've got such an amazing selection in the world food section as well. Things like rosé cocoa beans or gungo peas. Um, You know, you'll have tinned jackfruit, for example. You'll have, um, you know, the most amazing selection of different things, different lentils and different, you know, urid lentils and, and so forth. Go for it. You know, they are highly inexpensive. Lentils in particular, you know, 500 grams of lentils cooked for a family of four will last two to three days. And it and if anybody tries to challenge the money aspect of that versus buying frozen meals, for example, they simply cannot win the challenge. I have always found it cheaper to cook from scratch from those sections of the supermarket. Knowing how to is another is another thing, you know. And then the third section is the frozen section. Um, I mean... Again, the global influence in the frozen section is fantastic. Frozen bitter gourd, frozen okra, um, you know, uh, f- just unbelievable number of vegetables. F- I got frozen molochia leaves from a mainstream supermarket the other day. That's like a Persian green, you know, like what what is happening? This is brilliant. Frozen spinach, frozen herbs, frozen mixed vegetables, frozen brassicas, frozen peppers. My goodness, you know, um, sometimes I think a better way of running my house is for me to invest in more freezer space so I just have more space to put all of all of these lovely frozen ingredients. But 
you know, if you are on a budget, which we actually in reality, all of us are on a budget at the moment, you have to see what you can do within your means to improve your gut health. And by accessing those areas of the supermarket where you may not have spent so much time. Before. Exactly. And you didn't mention the meat counter. And most of your uh, recipes are very much plant based, aren't they? And that's the other thing. Reduce your meat, increase your plants. Totally. I do eat fish and meat, um, but I eat it very much in moderation and I live a very plant centric life. and I teach my children to eat very plant centric food as well. And so in this book, I didn't want to alienate those people who eat meat, but I wanted to show them a way that you can still incorporate meat into your diet, but it, for it to be a much smaller proportion of what you eat altogether. Exactly. Let's see how that works in your um, four food moments. The, uh, the Green Gut Goddess Salad. What a great title. Love that. <laughs> so... Green goddess salad went viral on TikTok. It's a it's a great salad. So what they what you do is you basically chop up cabbage into these little sort of squares. It's not grated. It's it's cut up into tiny little square pieces. And then they made this beautiful dressing with um, basil leaves and cashews and olive oils as its base and some chives and, and basil and things just to, to give it that really herby punch. It's really bright green and delicious. And you pour that dressing um, all over your brassicas and it keeps really well in the fridge, which is why people love it. And I think the trend actually came out of America. So they were having it with like those, tort- you know, those plain corn tortilla yeah. chips yeah. to dip in. So great texturally as well you know because you've got that crunch 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 um and i saw it and i thought hmm a little bit skeptical but you know i am always always a bit skeptical of viral trends because i think half of them don't taste half as good as people make them out to taste um so i thought you know what this one has piqued my interest a little bit i will give this a go and i did and i genuinely thought it was utterly delicious a great trend to, to to go on to and i did modify it because i made it a gut goddess salad so we sort of intensified the number of greens and brassicas inside it and i sort of wanted to make it that that bit extra special for the gut um, and it doesn't lose out in any of its flavour. It, it is really, really wonderful. And I think it does show you that once you know what gut healthy eating is, or what, you know, take out the word gut even, once you know what overall healthy yeah. eating looks like, then you'll yourself spontaneously find the ability to sift through the trends that are genuinely healthy and, and not. Yeah. And, and there are a lot of them around. I mean, I see this uh, Green Goddess salad everywhere now. Um, Take us to breakfast. That's your second food moment. Breakfast beans of dreams. Breakfast beans of dreams. So a lot of people don't know this about me, but for four or five very formative years of my early life, so uh, I think between the age of about five and nine, ten, I lived in, or maybe a little bit younger than that, I lived in Saudi Arabia. And we were exposed to lots of Middle Eastern cuisine. And my parents had jobs out there for a short period of time. And I really, I mean, we started eating very differently because we were living in the Middle East and exposed so heavily to the culture. My mum started to incorporate Middle Eastern food into her day-to-day cooking a lot more than she had ever done before. In fact, she probably hadn't ever done it before in reality. Um, And we used to go for breakfast um, to these shops which serve fool. Now, fool is this beautifully cooked fava bean dish 
And there's these big sort of metal tumblers that they cook overnight very slowly with very minimal spices. They just stew down and become this very thick, unctuous sort of mixture. And you have it with hunks of fresh breads and pickles, sometimes a bit of egg, sometimes a bit of extra zata on the side. And it's such a nutritious and delicious breakfast. And I really wanted to move people away from the concept of breakfast just being like sort of cold and a bit sort of naff you know I mean as wonderful as overnight oats are and I do like oats in all their forms as well there's only a certain number of oats that I can eat and maybe it is the Asian in me I want flavor in the morning as well I want hot flavorsome slightly spiced food in the morning as well which is why I was so keen on including this express version of a full recipe because nobody's got overnight to cook the the fava beans okay but actually you can get great tins in your local supermarkets may I add as well Mm -hmm. fava beans um in and they just work a treat and everybody I know who's cooked this recipe has been so impressed by it as a breakfast option um uh, you know or a brunch option you can do it on a weekday if you've got time in the morning or you can just do it on a Friday or a Saturday or a Sunday morning, Saturday, Sunday mornings, you know, like that brunchy sort of vibe. It's 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 lovely. Um, so I wanted to open up people's um, viewpoint on breakfast because the most important question that I get asked is, should I have breakfast or not? Is it good to have a breakfast? Well, let's reframe that question a little bit. What is it that you should be eating for breakfast is more important than whether or not you have it, in my opinion, um, because a glass of orange juice, um, some a very sweet um, sugar laden cereal um, with full fat milk over the top um, and two slices of toast with with um, a hydrogenated fat over the top yeah. verse, you know, is, is is very different to the breakfast that I'm recommending. Yeah. I, I remember when you um, when we talked about foodology and you talked about um, being trained to fast um, as a child. And so you your brunch on a Saturday morning was something that you were made to wait for. And <laughs> I would have that for brunch because that totally reminds me of, of the glory of waiting, waiting, waiting. I mean, we call it intermittent fasting now, don't we? I mean, it's just waiting, waiting mm. to eat a little bit later and it just makes you really <laughs> hungry and ready for your breakfast. Um, third food moment, good gut tacos. Mm, an interesting one, isn't it? So good gut tacos. I mean, again, I think this boils down to my real desire to introduce the concept that you can still have those dinner options that you really love with a but with a gut healthy homemade twist okay so i've got recipes for pizzas i've got recipes for lasagnas you know pasta dishes that you'd have on a day-to-day basis just given that little tweak burgers there's a burger recipe i mean come on you know like it's not a beefy cheesy tomatoey burger it's a beautiful jackfruit burger with a really fruity lovely slaw on top but the concept with gut, good gut tacos is to say this is a recipe that is a blueprint for how gut healthy eating can be done really easily most of us have fish fingers in the freezer I didn't shy away from using shop bought fish fingers you know someone who's done master chef you know 
I could quite easily have written a recipe for get your pieces of cord, put panko breadcrumbs over the top, then pan fry them. I didn't do it. I resisted the temptation to do that sort of thing because it makes it much less accessible for people at home. And actually using a recipe where you've bought the corn tacos, um, which I suggest you try and find whole wheat ones which are available, for example, where you've bought the fish fingers and all you have to do is buy a tin of black beans and a couple of fresh ingredients to create something that's, you know, really diverse, um, full of flavour um, and also very gut healthy. That's the whole concept of the book is to teach you to breakfast in a gut healthy way, snack in a gut healthy way, feast in a gut healthy way, yeah. lunch, you know, forget dry old sandwiches you know there is nothing in them for you not for your health not for your taste buds it's a useless food moment in and your treat life. yourself i mean your fourth food moment is a real treat labney passion fruit ginger cheesecake i mean this is absolutely beautiful tell us about this and why it's still fat healthy yeah i mean we have to really evaluate our relationship with sugar very carefully and i say relationship because and sugar is so widely available to us all that actually we all have a very unique relationship with refined sugar now. So you have to take a step back and say, what is my relationship with sugar? Am I too reliant on it to give me comfort, um, to elevate my mood, etc.? Because we know that sugar behaves almost like an addictive substance would. And you alluded to that earlier, Julie. However, what we've also got to remember is that the society that we live in, sugar plays a really important role in feasting, in food commensality, in food community, um, in even charity. Because what do you do when you want to raise money for charity? You have a bake sale and you bake sweet things, you know. You don't put on a salad platter. Um, you know, nobody, I mean, in fact, that's a very good idea. Maybe we should do a charity salad <laughs> platter God, day. God, salad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But that's the truth of the matter, yeah. isn't it? You know, we do, sweet has so many different cultural. It's permeated. Sweet food has permeated so deeply in our food culture yeah. that you cannot deny that it exists. And also, you should celebrate sweet foods, just not all the time. Which is why a cheesecake, which is full of um, beautiful fermented labneh, with its tart zinginess. Um, and then topped with loads of lovely, fibrous, seedy passion fruit with vitamin C goodness. And its base is full of, yes, ginger nut biscuits, but also a pretty healthy amount of omega-filled seeds and nuts is, is a great alternative. So I'm trying to teach people, you know, to eat nature's own desserts almost, you know, like dates, for example, that you can stuff with the most glorious things. Um, or, you know, fruit, just a different way of treating fruit. I mean, I, I remember a cookery author talking about how they went somewhere for dinner and for dessert, they were disappointed as a child because somebody just bought out peaches in water. This, I think, is in Italy somewhere. And so they just bought out peaches soaked in ice cold water. And the author thought, oh, my God, that's so disappointing. They wanted a pudding for dessert, you know. But later when they that peach was peeled and the slices of fruit were given to them they just can't they that's one of the most strong food memories they have they literally salivate every time they think about how fruity and delicious that peach was the slippery taste and you know just the unctuousness of it all and to reframe sweet food and fruit in a way that is really pleasing and appetizing is is really important well diana henry wrote a whole book about it how to eat a peach um yes exactly we talked a little bit um earlier about um telly 
I, you know, I wrote Taste in the TV Chef about how TV taught us to eat through, you know, people like Jamie Oliver and all those kind of people. But we still have this food culture where we just have this have and have nots. If you could have a telly show, what would you say to the patients who come to you every day? How do you how do you communicate that message? What would you say to them? Well, really big TV moments come at a real focal moment of change for entire communities and the way that people think about food long term. So, for example, when Jamie came on the scene, I was a very young girl. I absolutely loved The Naked Chef and I have no doubt that it changed the way not just I cooked, but a whole generation of kids like myself thought about food, um, how it became this sexy, amazing, wonderful thing. Aspirational. We are now at a focal point where it is really, really critical that the message of good gut healthy eating reaches the masses and reaches them in a way where they just learn about gut healthy eating in this beautiful, wonderful, seamless fashion where it doesn't even feel like a didactic education. Mm. It feels just like this is the aspirational way that we should all be thinking about food now. I've learned over the years, Julie, that the television appearances that I've done have had the most impact um, on people because it has the most widespread appeal. And when I sort of think about the power for good that I, I could do by doing more television and cooking more of my food on TV, it really, really, the concept really excites me. And I, you know, I do go on Saturday Kitchen, I do morning television, etc. And it is just the most wonderful experience yeah. because you leave there feeling so empowered and refreshed and the message goes out to so many more people i mean my my social media is flooding for days afterwards with people saying that what the things that you told us they had such a big impact on our health i mean i think there was a little while ago i was on saturday kitchen i think in the new year and i made these apple fennel and ginger shots for people now there's this massive trend at the at the moment for these little shots to be sold as sort of immune boosting sort of drinks mm. and they cost about 4 pounds for this much whereas i showed on television that for for 4 pounds you could make enough for a week for a family of 4 right um, and what you could do with it, you can freeze them, you can keep it in your fridge. This is how I to make a really good version that tastes really good. Also, don't listen to everybody who says that this is, you know, a panacea and will cure all your immune problems. It helps, but it's not the answer to everything. You know, that message was so strong. To this day, I get people who say, I make that shot. And it is the most rewarding feeling. But knowing that it has a long-term impact on them, that makes a massive difference to me. Thanks for listening. Do follow me on Instagram. I'm at Smith, and on Substack where you'll find a little extra bites from Salah. Just search for Julie Smith on Substack. I'll see you next week. Bye.